Your Excellencies, Ladies and Gentlemen, Friends of the Institute, dear colleagues. My name is Joachim Röhr. I'm the Administrative Director of the German Institute for Japanese Studies, the DIJ. I'd like, I'd like to welcome you tonight to the inaugural lecture of the Institute's new director, Professor Dr. Franz Waldenberger. The DIJ was founded by the German government in 1988 as an interdisciplinary research institute. It conducts research in modern Japanese studies, society, economics, politics, and culture. The director of the institute is usually nominated for a period up to 10 years. Franz Waldenberger is the fourth director of the institute. It's a great honor to DIJ that His Excellenz, the Ambassador of the Federal Republic of Germany, Dr. Hans-Karl von Wertern, is joining us tonight and will be the first speaker. Apart from being an outstanding diplomat, Ambassador von Wertern is an economist, like Franz Waldenberger. Mr. Ambassador. Dear Mr. Waldenberger, dear Mr. Röhr, ladies and gentlemen, it is indeed a pleasure and an honor to be here at this inaugural lecture of Mr. Waldenberger. You already hinted at it. At the German Institute for Japanese Studies, DIJ for Deutsches Institut for Japan Studium, is indeed an exceptional institution for interdisciplinary research on all aspects of contemporary Japan, economics, politics, society, and culture. What makes it truly unique is the comparative perspective at the core of its research projects. This allows us invaluable insights into Japan and into its relations with Germany and other countries. Combined with the advantage of the Tokyo location, DIJ has served for more than 25 years as an exemplary bridge builder between our nations. And that is something that, as an embassy and an ambassador, uh, we are very glad about and grateful about. Throughout this time, throughout these 26 years, DIJ has been a key source of expert analysis and reliable knowledge on Japan. The German embassy and our colleagues in the various branches of the German government have greatly benefited from this expertise. DIJ fundamentally contributes to the rel relevance and vitality of Japanese studies. Its free research agenda provides for an environment in which new ideas take shape and innovative research approaches can evolve. At the embassy, we deeply appreciate the fruitful conversations and exchanges with the various experts at DIJ in our regular interactions at DIJ events and on the occasion of visits from Germany. The new research program, Risks and Opportunities in Japan, Challenges in Face of an Increasingly Uncertain Future, exemplifies this, traditional, uh, this tradition of innovative research. At the same time, 
It promises a most timely new direction of the Institute. Japan and Germany are both confronted with increasing uncertainty in the modern world. Demographic challenges that arise from an aging population and declining birth rates, economic challenges such as the rising gap between the rich and the poor in the countries, and global competition that is fueled by technological progress, the choices we need to make in order to secure, secure our future energy supplies in a sustainable fashion, security challenges in our neighborhoods, all these shared challenges carry a multitude of risks and opportunities. The new DIJ agenda thus holds the prospect of a comprehensive and unique new insights into the major transformations that can be witnessed in Japan. I would not be surprised if it also unearthed new opportunities for deepening our bilateral ties through a better understanding of each other. How each one of us tends to deal with risk and uncertainty and how risk-taking or risk-adverse our societies prove to be when called to task. Three years ago, following the great East Japan earthquake of 2011, Japan set an example in resilience that inspired the world. I trust that the upcoming DIJ research will once again demonstrate how and why Japan continues to, ma to matter to Germany and to the world as a whole. I congratulate you, Dr. Waldenberger, on your new role as a director of this wonderful institute. For you and for us, it's a homecoming of sorts. That you now return after having already been a senior research fellow at DIJ in the 1990s, 1990s speaks of the importance of DIJ for German-Japanese relations. For the coming years, I convey my best wishes for much success to you and your team. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Ambassador. As I mentioned before, the German Institute for Japanese Studies was founded in 1988. At that time, it was the sixth German institute abroad financed by the German government. The first one was the German Historical Institute in Rome, which was set up at Historical Station in 1888, 100 years before DIJ. In the year 2000, there were already eight research institutes in seven countries around the world. On recommendation of the German Council of Science and Humanities, the German government established the Max Weber Foundation, organizing the institutes under one roof. The highest governing body of the Max Weber Foundation is its board of trustees. In Bonn, where the foundation is located, a central office was set up in order to support the work of the academic advisory councils and the staff of the various institutes. Local administrative matters are dealt with by the institute themselves. However, overall tasks and representation towards authorities in Germany 
are attended to by the central office. The central office is headed by the executive director. Tonight, we are happy to welcome the executive director of Max Weber Foundation, Dr. Harald Rosenbach. Dr. Rosenbach, please. Mr. Ambassador, dear Franz Waldenberger, dear colleagues of the Institute, ladies and gentlemen. On behalf of the president of the Max Weber Foundation, Professor Heinz Duchert, it's my honor to welcome Franz Waldenberger as new director of the German Institute for Japanese Studies. Unfortunately, neither Heinz Duchert nor Gesine Folianti Joost, who chairs the academic advisory board, could come to Tokyo due to other obligations but they sent their best regards. This is a very special day today. Welcoming the new director is always a remarkable and even decisive step within the history of any institute, and that deserves every kind of attention. In so far, today's event gives us the opportunity to reflect on the past and look forward to the future. But don't worry, I'm not going to deliver a speech now. This is your part, Franz Waldenberger. But just allow me to make a few comments. The Max Weber Foundation operates the German Institute for Japanese Studies as one of ten institutes worldwide. All our institutes in Europe, North America, and the Middle East share an utmost amount of academic freedom. Actually, there is only one task, or rather mission, to be accomplished. All our institutes are obliged to contribute to a better understanding between Germany and the respective host country. The single instrument is first-rate research on a high international level. And I might say that the Tokyo Institute has done a perfect job so far during the first 26 years of its existence. Any successful institute like the DIJ rests on two columns. The first one is excellent infrastructure, like office space, electronic devices, equipment, and so on. The second column, and from my personal point of view, the even much more important one, is a good team that runs the institute. Among the team, it's quite obviously, the position of the director is of unique importance for the institute. Finding the right person for the directorship is not only a difficult, but sometimes even a risky job. And this leads me to Franz Waldenberger. When he showed interest in the post as director in Tokyo, he had to overcome two obstacles. The first was set by the Academic Advisory Board. He took this hurdle quite easily. The second and decisive one was the Foundation's Board of Trustees in Bonn. It doesn't need a whistleblower this day to say that the decision for Franz Waldenberger was, in both cases, unanimous. It was his academic merits as well as his personal presentation that convinced both committees. And so far, the Board of Trustees was quite sure that it wouldn't run a risk appointing Franz Waldenberger as new director. Speaking of risks, risks and opportunities in Japan is the new project that now comes into the picture and adds to the last research projects, Demography and Happiness, which, we, which were carried out at the Institute within the last 10 years. Tonight we will learn more about it. 
As he told me, Franz Waldenberger developed his distinguished interest in East Asian affairs as a young pupil attending an international school in Wales. Some years later, he found himself studying economics at Heidelberg University, and it didn't take long, and he seized the first chance to come to Tokyo as an undergraduate exchange student. This was back in 1983, and the place he was going to, you may guess, quite opposite the street, Sophia University. After obtaining his PhD degree at Cologne University in 1990, he worked for the German government as scientific expert. From 1992 to 97, he, worked, he came to Tokyo for a second time, now as a researcher at the German Institute for Japanese Studies. At that time, he worked on the influences of public policy and of big companies on Japanese economy after 1945. Obviously, he benefited a lot from this day as he became professor for Japanese economics instantly in 1997 at Munich University. In Munich, he had a very special position since he was an economist as well as an expert in regional studies and Japanese affairs. Thus, institutionally, he collaborated with the one faculty as well as with the other. Everybody who is familiar with the German university system knows how daring such a job is and how much diplomatic talent it needs to succeed in such a position. Franz Waldenberger did. To cut a long story short, Franz Waldenberger is the right person in the right place. He's widely connected in Germany and Japan and beyond. His new research project bears many opportunities for collaboration in Japan within the Max Weber Foundation and worldwide. We are looking forward to this because the regular change of directors and research projects always maintains the innovative character of our institutes. It usually takes its while until a new director feels that a certain degree of routine makes everyday life easier. I'm very sure that the colleagues, as well as the academic advisory board and the numerous friends and supporters of the institute will, have be, a, will be of great help. Last but not least, the whole foundation wishes you all the best for the next five years, at least the next five years. And we sincerely hope that this will be a successful and happy time for you with regard to the job, as well as your private life. Finally, facing this year the 100th anniversary of World War I, I'm coming to a different topic. You will soon uh, know why I'm changing the theme. Um, I do not want to close without referring to a former project of the Institute, the so-called Bando project. This fine project throws light on a Japanese camp for German prisoners of war during the First World War. The Institute earned its merits by establishing a virtual exhibition of the Bando camp on its homepage. Numerous written documents and drawings tell us about the lives of the German prisoners, who were not that unhappy at all at that time, since they were granted many liberties like organizing their concerts, theaters, and so on. Why am, I, why am I telling you this? The project is a very good example of bilateral research, and it contributes to a common basis of mutual understanding. I invite all of you to visit the Institute's homepage and have a look at yourself, for yourselves. I would like to combine this recommendation with a gift to the Institute 
It's a little booklet that was written by one of these German inmates, and it may enrich your precious little library and stand for the successful future of the Institute. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Rosenbach. As directors of its institutes, the Max Weber Foundation nominates established scientists limited, for limited periods of time, usually German university professors. Last year, the Board of Trustees chose Franz Waldenberger as new director of DIJ. Franz Waldenberger started his directorate at October 1st this year. As Mr. Rosenbach already mentioned, before that, he held the position of professor for Japanese economic at, Japan, at the Japan Center and at Munich School of Management of Ludwig Maximilians University. For Professor Waldenberger, the DIJ is not new. From 1992 to 1997, he was a senior research fellow at the Institute. He is familiar with the DIJ, with its work, the people at the Institute, and the scientific community in Tokyo and Japan. Many of us know him personally, and he, is a, and he has a lot of friends in the community. Professor Waldenberger and I have known each other for more than 17 years. He is not only regarded as an excellent scientist, but also well-respected as a person. I'm sure Franz Waldenberger will be most successful as, as director of DIJ. Franz. Thank you, uh, dear Ambassador, uh, dear Dr. Rosenbach, dear Joachim. Many thanks for these kind words. Um, yes, uh, there are high expectations <laughs> you raised. Um, I cannot fulfill them all tonight, but I have time. I'll do my best, and I'm sure that with the team I find here at uh, DIJ, um, we'll, we'll be, we can do a very good job. Um, I would like to use the opportunity tonight to uh, introduce you to uh, the research project that I envisage for the next five years at DIJ. And um, I want to summarize sort of uh, my, my speech in... in in five main messages. So we could go to the reception just after these five messages, but please stay on. I will have to say a little bit more. <laughs> but just uh, before your attention goes down, please, um, these are the five messages I want to convey to you tonight. First of all, I'm very grateful to be here. Japan is a great place to be, and it's also a fascinating object of research for the social sciences and humanities. My third message will be that it has already been touched upon by the ambassador. The DIJ is uniquely positioned to conduct research on Japan. And the research program I want to present to you today actually is able, as I think, uh, and we will show, address to address the fundamental challenges that Japan and other societies face. Last but not least, and that's very good to have you here tonight, many of the people that uh, we want to continue to collaborate with or to newly start to collaborate with, we can only achieve our goals. We are a small institute, we are very ambitious, uh, but we can only succeed 
if you support us and if you collaborate with us. So um, for the next 30 minutes, um, I would like to explain a little bit, uh, uh, explore a little bit these five messages, main messages. I think the first one I don't have to say very much because uh, the next two statements basically explain why, it's cr why I feel very grateful to be here, because Japan is a great place and because the DOJ is a unique research institute and it's an honor uh, to be here, the head of such an institute. The next, well, and the, the last as well, I hope that if I'm successful with my presentation tonight, then by the end of my presentation, you all feel excited about what we are doing and you all want to collaborate with us, yeah? So uh, this is, uh, then I can check during the reception whether I've been successful or not. Japan is a great place to be. Um, this is a very personal statement, but I think it's something that many of you share with me, and if I was going on to explain why, then I think it would fill the whole evening. But I'm very happy to be here, and there are lots of things I admire in Japan. Uh, it's, not, it's not only culture, the people, the dedication, um, a lot of things. We could go on whole evening to talk about the, uh, the great treasures of this country. Treasures that, uh, the value of these treasures is that you have to discover them. Japan is often not telling us uh, all its, all its uh, not showing us all its great assets. Well, what makes Japan a fascinating object of research for the social sciences and humanities? Well, first of all, it shares a lot of the challenges that other advanced economies confront and well, including, including Germany. And it's not only sharing a lot of these challenges, it is also often a front-runner. <laughs> often the challenges that Japan confronts have evolved much faster, or they pose themselves more severely. So um, I think it's very good to look at Japan. And, of course, Japan is the third largest economy of the world. It's not just a little a little country. What happens in Japan is of relevance to not only to Japan, but to the whole world. Let me just pick one example that many of you know and that the DAJ has researched now for many years, and we will continue to consider this topic under the new research program because it, in, in, it uh, implies a lot of risks, but also some opportunities. The case of demographic change. In Japan, like in Germany, we have the same development, aging of the population, decline of the population. But as you can see by these few figures, that the development in Japan is much more dramatic, much more pronounced than in Germany. Yeah? Japan was much younger than Germany in the 1960s, and now it's going to be much older <laughs> than Germany. Yeah? So it's the same development, but much more pronounced. And even more dramatic, when we look at, well, the estimates or the forecasts for population growth, here we see that Japan had a much more dramatic increase in its population, more than 30% over the last 50 years. But the decline, if nothing happens, yeah, if nothing happens, if things stay as they are, the decline will be the same, also very dramatic, yeah? It's, this, it's a nice shape of a Fuji, Mount Fuji, yeah? very symmetric. Yeah? Whereas 
for Germany, it's a little hill. It's also, uh, of course, for Germany, there are lots of challenges involved, but compared with Japan, I think Germany um, can take uh, a more, maybe more relaxed uh, attitude to this, to this uh, transformation. But it's not only demographic change. It's also, and this is also shared with other economies and something uh, we will look at, and some of the researchers have already looked at, growing income inequalities, rising share of relative poor. How does it affect social coherence? Yeah? How does a society, how much inequality can a society tolerate? How can you integrate groups, minorities? Another thing, of course, is something, uh, well, Fukushima was a turning point. It was very much a turning point in German energy policy because Germany immediately decided to step out of nuclear energy. But for Japan as well, of course, Japan also has to consider its, its energy policy and uh, it still counts on nuclear power as a baseload uh, energy source, but it's also investing heavily in uh, renewables. And, of course, political tensions with close neighbors. These are risks and opportunities. We also have, of course, in Europe, we have tensions now. There are other challenges uh, a bit further away where Japan and Germany are on the same side and uh, need, to be, need to show that they are reliable partners. For me as an economist, uh, studying the Japanese economy for more, more than 20 years, I must say Japan has always been an exciting object and it has never become boring. There was always something new happening in Japan. Yeah? And the macroeconomic environment that char characterizes um, now the situation here is something you don't find in macroeconomic textbooks. I think macroeconomic textbooks have to be rewritten after the Japanese case experience. It's new. And therefore, if you have two or three economists commenting on the Japanese economy, you get two or three opinions, yeah? because it's not in the textbook. Uh, Japan is really sort of entering or already, uh, yeah, it's re already in uncharted waters. Deflation, record high fiscal debt, and now also the aggressive monetary policy. Last but not least, Japan, of course, the Japanese companies are facing global competition in third countries, but increasingly also at home. And, of course, there is accelerating technological change, and that is also a big challenge, especially for industry, but also for the employees who have to keep up uh, lifelong learning. They have to improve their skills, and the education system has to prepare for these challenges. So um, to be in Japan and to be able to look at these challenges, um, I think we can learn a lot for Germany and also, of course, the comparative approach is something that is very uh, fruitful uh, when we tackle these questions. I think the DAJ is uniquely positioned to conduct research on Japan because we are here we are on site, we are in Tokyo, um, but we will not only look at Tokyo, we will also go into the regions where many of these challenges are uh, felt uh, much stronger, much more strongly than maybe in Tokyo. 
We are in Japan, but we also, of course, we have a German background, um, international background. We have an outside perspective. And I think this is a, a very interesting combination, especially we're working with Japanese partners. Also, very unique, we are a multidisciplinary institute. We have many disciplines. We have people with an economic background, political science. Uh, we have one psychologist at the moment, one historian. We have sociologists. Um, I hope I hadn't forgotten any um, of the disciplines who are represented now at the Institute Political Science um, also. So uh, a wide range of disciplines. And, um, well, therefore, I think we offer a natural platform for comparative and interdisciplinary research, something that is um, highly on demand now. It's not so well established in the disciplines in the academic world, but I think the problems that societies are confronting are so complex that uh, just one discipline or one approach or one method will not be enough to really grasp the substance of the, of the problem. Well, of course, um, was already mentioned, uh, the DIJ, uh, of course, what makes, what makes the DIJ is the people. And I also think that we have a team that is able to live up to the expectations that have been raised here and that I might also raise during my presentation. Um, this is a very recent photo. Many of you will receive this again uh, when we send out our Christmas and New Year card. <laughs> so you don't have to remember the faces. You will get them, yeah, um, for sure. But you can see already, very diverse, yeah, in many, in, uh, many respects. Yeah, talking about uh, risks and opportunities, I've so far only spoken about challenges, but of course challenges imply risks and opportunities, and we want to find out how Japan controls the risks and how Japan exploits the opportunities inherent in the challenges that it faces. And I think that the answer to these questions, the answers are not only of relevance for Japan, given Japan's economic and political influence. Now, let me talk as an economist. I mean, we are just starting. I cannot present you with finished research results. So um, let me just sort of stimulate your interest by uh, giving you an example from an economic perspective where I think that uh, the topic of risk and opportunity can be fruitfully applied, a topic that is highly complex but it's highly interesting as well and very relevant. And um, I've put this under the heading of an economy with unexploited opportunities. Japan, as many, at least, yeah, many, many of you will know, up to the 1990s, actually, the Institute was found in, in 1988 under the impression of Japan's economic success. And everybody wanted to know how do the Japanese do this? How, why are the Japanese so successful? Yeah? It's still also very important, of course, to know why Japan stopped being so successful. Yeah? I think we can learn as much as from its success. But up to 1990s, Japan was a major driver of the structural change in the global economy. And now it's driven by other countries who have taken Japan's position and role, like China, yeah? for example, or India. 
So the big question is, how can Japan maintain its vitality, its productivity, and level of welfare? I think these are, well, that's the core question that every government in Japan has to address. Yeah? And, well, from an economic perspective, you, you see where are the potentials? What potentials does Japan have? And I will show you that Japan, when you look at the resources that are here, available, then Japan has a lot of potential, which it's not, it is not leveraging, it's not exploiting to the full extent. One first potential, productive potential, Japan in Japan is technology. Japan is investing a lot in research and development. It is one of the top sort of countries in terms of uh, R&D intensity. The amount of money spent on research and development, developing new products, new, uh, new production processes, relative to GDP. Japan is ranked number five among 34 OECD countries. There are only smaller countries like, well, Korea, very ambitious, now number one with more than 4%, and Israel, Finland, and Sweden has about the same amount, 3.4% invested in R&D of its uh, cross domestic product. Germany has been catching up a little bit, but it's still at 3%, and the OECD average is on 2.4%. So Japan do, is doing a lot, yeah? trying a lot to stay ahead, investing in new products, new technologies, enormously. And even more impressive, Japan is getting out of these research and development efforts a lot of patents, a lot of knowledge that has a value, so it is worthwhile to patent it. Patenting knowledge is very expensive. So if, if it isn't valuable, you would not go through the cost, you would not bear the cost of patenting the knowledge. And here, what I depict here is the so-called triad patent family applications. A triad patent family application is an application that is a patent that is applied simultaneously in the US, Japan, and Europe. Yeah, so it's, it must be really valuable because it's very expensive to do so. And when you look at the shares, you see that Japan is the country, although it's not the largest economy in the world, the U.S. is much bigger, but Japan is making many more applications, um, has a higher share than U.S. It's number one worldwide in terms of these patent applications. So Japan has a, a huge knowledge base, a new knowledge new knowledge, generating a lot of new knowledge that seems to be very valuable because Japan is applying for patents, global patents in this area. Another productive potential, of course, is the highly skilled labor Japan has. When you look at the share of persons with a, an education of at least college and university level, then in the age group 25 to 64, that's sort of the working population after people have left sort of the university. Japan is second. 47% of in this age group have a college or university degree in Japan. It's second just behind Canada. Well, Canada's immigration policy, of course, <laughs> had the purpose of inviting especially people with higher educational levels. It's second among 35 OECD countries. Um, there's another interesting result, a survey that was conducted for the first time uh, in 2013, last year, 
you might all be familiar with the PISA study, which looks at the literacy levels of, of pupils yeah, at different stages in school. Now, this uh, proficiency uh, test was conducted among adult, the adult population between 16 and, 60, 16 and 65 years of age. And people were asked simple calculations uh, that they confront when they, when they go shopping, yeah? Um, there's a 10% discount. What does it mean? Yeah? <laughs> or calculate, uh, calculate the absolute value. Um, or they had to read a simple text, and then they had to answer questions about what the text said. And for both, in both categories, Japan came a clear number, f- number one. So uh, the population has a high level of education, and obviously it can also apply this education. The last thing that Japan has, last sort of productive potential I want to point out, is its financial capital. What you see here is the equity ratio of corporations over the period from 1955, when the high growth started, to 2012. And you see that the equity ratio, yeah, the, the capital, the risk capital that Japanese companies had, this ratio declined extremely during high growth because companies had lots of investment opportunities. They had very little cash flow, internal cash flow, so they borrowed a lot of money from the banks and from other companies. So the equity ratio went down to a very low, about on average 10%, extremely low. Everybody was wondering how companies can run a business uh, with such a low ratio of risk capital. Well, the special Japanese banking system explains a lot why. But what happened? What happened afterwards? Now, during the whole deflation and even the Lehman shock, what we see here, Japanese companies continuously increase their equity base. They are now financially, on average, financially very sound and stable. This is not just the listed companies. These are all companies. They are quite stable and they are cash-rich. They have a lot of cash. They have more liquid assets, much more liquid assets than they have short-term liabilities. So uh, this is really... Japan has the technology, Japan has the people, and Japan has the capital, financial capital. So why isn't this country not sort of up and uh, on top, on top of everyone? Well, one thing, and that is very surprising... With all these assets, yeah, with all these productive factors, Japan is still lacking behind in productivity. This is the productivity per hour. Taking the U.S. as a benchmark, U.S. is set as 100. And we see, of course, in the 1970s, we have here Japan and Germany. We see in the 1970s the productivity of Japan per hour was just about 40% of the U.S. level in Germany It was better, uh, close to 70%. Both Japan and Germany caught up. They closed the productivity gap with the U.S., but now they stayed. Germany stayed little improved, still a 10% productivity gap to the United States. Japan improved up to 70% almost, and then the recent years, a slight decline. Now, 
Japan has the technology, they have the skilled labor. Why, why don't they have the productivity that other advanced economies achieve with less technology, with less skilled labor? Yeah, that's a puzzle. That's something we'd say. This needs to be. This needs to be explained. When we look at the present rankings, Japan's productivity per hour in 2013. These are calculated in U.S. dollar using current uh, purchasing pro- purchasing power parities. Um, it's 41 dollar per hour. This was rank number 20 among 30, 34. OECD countries, it's below the OECD average. Yeah? This is amazing. Is Japan wasting resources? Yeah? Why? What, what are they doing? <laughs> what are they doing? They have this technology, they have these people, and they have enough capital to, uh, yeah, to do something. The other, the other puzzle is that Japan was once catching up and it was threatening Europe, the U.S., position in many world markets up to the 1990s. Since the 1990s, Japan's position in the world economy has declined. Of course, not everybody can increase its share, especially when a country like China is sort of raising to the top. But um, raising to the top. But Japan's share in world exports actually halved dropped from 8 to 4%, which means that Japan participated in the growth of the world economy only half. Yeah? If, the, if the world economy goes 100, Japan only went 50. And now you would say, okay, what is world exports? Nowadays, FDI, Japanese companies build production facilities abroad, and they're now exporting from other countries, so the experts, exports from a country like Japan only tell half the story. But then we look at the outward foreign direct investment stock and we see the same decline from 9% to 4% over the last 20 years. Recovering now, recovering. And you see the rank. Japan was ranked number three in 1990 in terms of outward FDI stock. Business investment Japanese corporations had undertaken abroad and the, the aggregate stock of this investment was the third uh, biggest in the world. And it dropped to 2005, it was only 10th, and now it's 7. It seems to recover at the moment. Lots of Japanese companies are doing M&A, international cross-border M&A. But still, it's amazing that the third largest economy is ranked 7, and that it lost over the last 20 years its once strong position, despite the potential this company has. So um, why? Now, it's a very complex question. Um, and of course, with complex questions, you get a lot of answers. Yeah? And I will just present you a few of the answers that are in the literature. There is no study that tries to comprehensively sort of include or answer this question in total. Some people point to regulation. Japan is highly regulated, they say. So companies bear high bureaucracy costs, and this might, be, this might be a problem. Well, actually, the OECD has put a lot of effort into comparative statistics on regulatory intensity, and if you believe the methodology can always be questioned, it's very difficult to do, then actually Japan comes out middle. 
Yeah, it's not heavily more regulated, at least according to these findings, than uh, other OECD countries. Lack of labor mobility among firms. That has been pointed out, and I think this is an important aspect, that in Japan, because you have these in-house careers, once you start with a company, you go up to the top. If you move, you lose. <laughs> Lots of people move because, uh, yeah, because their companies fail or for other reasons, and then, of course, uh, they cannot continue their career. Um, lack of labor mobility among firms is very important when it comes to structural change and structural adjustment. Japan is very good. Japanese companies have been very successful in diversifying, in taking the people they have, their employees, into other fields. But maybe the structural change that Japanese economy confronts uh, requires more employees to move out of firms and to other firms. Work organization, uh, the way Japanese organize their work. Uh, if you have ever worked in a Japanese company, you see that you work long and um, there are no, no clear job descriptions. Lots of people do the same thing. Nobody takes a holiday because uh, then others have to do the work. Yeah, And um, a, lot of, yeah, a lot of things you might think could be organized more efficiently. The Japanese focus on detail which is uh, something we appreciate, of course, yeah, for the high quality of, of Japanese products. Uh, but the focus on detail might sometimes be not uh, the best. Yeah? Sometimes less might be more. Or, which I also observe, and many others share this, this view, the focus on processes instead of outcomes. The Gambaru spirit. Yeah? You did your best, and it doesn't count what you got out of it. Yeah? In, in Germany, we have the saying, Ende gut, alles gut. Yeah? The end is fine, everything is fine. So nobody cares about how you got it. Yeah? In, German, in Japan, it's just the opposite. Yeah? You, have to, you have to be working hard. And only then, uh, if you then also succeed, the better. But even if you don't succeed, you have worked hard. Consensus-oriented decision processes that take a lot of time especially in a global dynamic context, changing context. And Japan is now a front-runner. When Japan was catching up, consensus was easy. You saw where you go. Yeah? You had somebody running in front of you. Now you're caught up, you're in the front. Where to go? You have to make much more risky decisions. And then consensus might not be the best way to, to, find your, to, to choose your strategy. So that combines also with uh, what people say is a lack of leadership in this country, a lack of entrepreneurs who change things and who, who, who decide quickly. And it might also be the lack of the productivity, the lack of globalization. Japan has technology. Technology is something, it doesn't get used up by selling more products that incorporate the technology. If you have a great technology, you should, you should expand it globally. Yeah? If you limit your market then you don't get the best out of your technology. Yeah. So uh, lack of globalization might also... But what are the globalization barriers? I'm not very uh, fond of cultural arguments, but some people point to cultural ar arguments, that saying that, of course, we know Japanese have a strong preference for harmony. Yeah? Uh, so uh, this is something that's opposed to diversity. It's very hard to accept diversity, to accept uh, except conflicting, conflicting ideas. Um, 
uh, foreigners in this country are uh, a minority. Um, despite the demographic challenges, Japan is not considering an active immigration policy on a large scale um, because it could disturb maybe the harmony that is so highly treasured. Mindsets. Japan is still a large economy. Many people, young people, don't think they need English or they need an international background to succeed. Yeah? Um, structural barriers. Surprisingly, Japan is dominated by small, medium-sized enterprises. What we, from outside, we only see the big companies, and they are, of course, uh, successful. Uh, the Toyotas and Hondas and, and NEC and Fujitsu and Matsushita, now Panasonic. But when you look at the statistics, most employees in Japan, about 70%, are employed by small, medium-sized enterprises. And they often lack the resources, the background, the skills to go abroad, or the confidence. Structural barriers internally, that relates also to the lack of labor mobility. Internal labor markets, Japanese, even global players, even global Japanese players are not attracting global talent because they are still managing their human resources at home and uh, the way to the top is reserved to male Japanese at home and not maybe to talented people that are hired somewhere out there in the world. So unless Japanese companies open up their, their human resource system to also integrate, integrate foreign talented employees, I think they will have a hard time in really globalizing, really becoming a global, global companies. And, of course, you can put the same argument here, time-consuming consensus-oriented decision-making processes. So there are lots of answers, lots of possible answers. You need lack of leadership, like on the other side. You need, yeah, you need not one research project. I think you need a research program and uh, a, lot of, a lot of small uh, projects that ideally combine and add to each other, complement each other, in order to tackle this big and complex but very important question that Japan is confronting and has to answer. And Mr. Abe with Abenomics, with a third arrow, tries to answer, answer this, this question. Um, I sometimes feel that uh, it's not, uh, his policy measures are not um, well adjusted, well adjusted to the complexity that we confront here. So the research design in order to tackle this question, why Japan, with all its resources, is not able to, uh, well, to increase its productivity further or to globalize further, to leverage these resources globally. Why? Well, such research design necessarily is comparative, comparing companies, looking in detail at companies' industries, comparing countries. It needs to be multidisciplinary. As I saw, the arguments I, I mentioned... They are cultural arguments, they are political, legal arguments, legal barriers, they are economic arguments, management arguments, yeah? So you have to combine different disciplines in order to find, to somehow find or draw the whole picture. And of course, you need to apply various methods to do so. They are similar themes that require similar approaches in other areas, and one, for example, is energy. 
in energy is also amazing that Japan, the most earthquake-prone <laughs> country in the world, <laughs> did put so much uh, efforts into nuclear power. Uh, on, the, on the other hand, now, when you look at renewables, the sun, the wind, the biomass, water, geothermic, thermal, geothermal energy, Japan seems to be very rich. Yeah? It's just a matter of time. Now the technology is ripe, and in many areas uh, already uh, the costs of these renewable energies are lower than traditional fossil or even nuclear energy. Even the United States is expanding renewables, not for ideological reasons. No, because of economic reasons. Because now in the United States, cooling water is very expensive and scarce. So uh, even in Texas, they're building, they're investing in wind power and solar power. Yeah? So and at some stage, um, and Japan, if you look at these resources, Japan is very rich. So a lot of opportunities in this field as well. Agriculture, not so big, <laughs> very small, but still politically highly sensitive. And here again, a lot of opportunities that Japan now must take. Uh, otherwise, uh, the agricultural sector will go down and down. The people are just dying out and abandoning land, despite of all the protection there is. So a lot of challenges, a lot of opportunities. And what's interesting from a research point of view is, and this is why I think the perspective of risk and opportunities is interesting. This is not just a matter of economics, of saying this is better than that and you have to choose just the better option. It's not the case. An economy consists of many groups of many different interests. And so a reform process in the end is basically a process where you negotiate. You negotiate the risk and opportunities of the various stakeholders involved. Yeah? Changing the agricultural sector. There are, of course, many many actors that are benefiting a lot from the existing system. And they don't want to change. And they have a strong political influence. Yeah, how to moderate, how to overcome their resistance. You have to, of course, take into consideration their risks, risk perception. Yeah? And uh, it, it requires a lot of skills, communication skills, but of course also leadership skills um, to uh, sort of overcome, overcome resistance to change. And that's, I think, very evident in Japan at the moment. Yeah, even the momentum of abenomics, the momentum of abenomics seems to falter <laughs> when it comes to vested interests in these areas. But it, for our, from our perspective, it's just interesting to look at it and to see why, at what stage, and what groups, and what actors, for what reasons, um, were able to block to prevent Japan from exploiting its opportunities further. And then maybe also with the help of looking at other countries. Yeah? If you look at agriculture, for example, the reforms in Holland or Denmark, uh, which successfully sort of pushed the agricultural sector there in these highly developed economies, yeah? they might be an example for, for Japan as well. How did they manage? How did they overcome resistance? Our research program on risk and opportunities, of course, there's a wide range of topics that we, uh, we, could, we can incorporate. We can incorporate. We are not able to do everything. But um, just, just sort of 
the, 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 uh, what is possible or what could be possible, and whether, whether one of these topics are realized, what topics are realized depends, of course, on what people are working at DIJ, who are the senior researchers, what, are, what is their background, what is their interest, but also who is collaborating with us yeah, in, in these fields. So they are genius, genuine risk research fields. They are also general topics, one I mentioned, productivity and welfare, energy policy, and they are these far-reaching transformation processes like globalization and demographic change, rising social inequalities, and so on that also bear a lot of risks and opportunities that one might uh, take a closer look at from various social uh, science disciplines. There are not only a wide range of um, topics that um, offer are offered to us by, by taking this risk and opportunity perspective. There's also a wide range of um, approaches. As I said, we, every researcher here is, has a background in one of the social science or humanities disciplines, so he, has, he will apply concepts and theoretical approaches that are rooted in these different disciplines. He will be able to select from a wide variety of methods. We are not just quantitative uh, we also try to be qualitative, yeah, do qualitative research. I think this is there's a trend in, in the social sciences to, towards more and more uh, quantitative uh, methods, but I think for complex topics, it's very important to not forget about the merits of qualitative research. And um, with these findings based on, on separate disciplines, uh, all looking at the same topic or taking the same perspective. I think it will be very interesting to see how these findings combine and to, to have real interdisciplinary discussions, discourses about whether there are contradictions among these separate findings or whether they complement each other. And of course, by taking by collaborating with people from, from other researchers from other countries, experts from other countries, uh, we'll be able to put Japan into an international context by conducting comparative studies. So uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot to do, and I think, um, well, we cannot do everything, but um, if we are successful in a few of these areas, I think we will move even beyond answering the question of how Japan controls the risk and opportunities inherent in the challenges it confronts. We will also learn by this about how Japan as such, how its culture and society and economy and politics functions. We, get a, we appreciate more deeply um, the Japanese way, or maybe we understand more clearly where the Japanese difficulties lie. And by applying multi-interdisciplinary approaches and comparative analysis, I think we can also advance, advance the, uh, the theories and, and concepts in, in the various disciplines. This is a big challenge. But I, as I said before, for an economist looking at Japan at the moment, uh, there is no textbook solution to Japan's problems. Yeah? So if we, if we are able to, uh, to, f to learn a little bit about what Japan is confronting and how Japan is maybe succeeding 
in, in, in overcoming its challenges, then we can also contribute to uh, economic theory here. And of course, more generally, uh, risk and opportunity is something any society confronts. It's uh, closely linked to the future, to the sustainability of societies. Whether societies are sustainable depends on how they confront the risk and opportunities of uncertain futures. All this, of course, is only possible, and here now I come to the last statement. If you remember, I had five messages. Now we are at the five, fifth message, yeah? so soon the buffet will be opened. Um, to achieve our goals, we will need, of course, your support and collaboration. What do I mean with this? In general, of course, keeping contact, yeah? exchanging ideas, information about activities, maybe Without communicating, there is no... Communication is the start of everything. So this is the minimum I think we can do. Uh, keep in contact by exchanging ideas and uh, information about our activities. In many fields, I think... There are, very, there are some friends here from Japanese universities and uh, even people from Chinese universities and from German universities, so... Um, Academic collaboration. We have a, a guest researcher program, which we, of course, try to use to bring people who work closely to our research to the institute for a few weeks and, and yeah, work closely, more intensively together on uh, projects, joint projects. Joint events, organizing workshops, conferences, and joint research projects. That's the highest level of collaboration here. But also there are other means, financial support, there are some foundations here among the audience, um, access to the field, there are stakeholders, there are people from, from Japanese corporations that we study. It's very important for a researcher who is an outsider, of course we can read the newspapers, we can look at the statistics, but in order to get a better picture we need to go out there and we need to look into the companies and we need to go to the regions and into the field. And this is sometimes the hardest part of the research because we are disturbing. <laughs> yeah? Nobody wants us to be there. Uh, everybody is busy. And so uh, a very important way to support us, if you are a practitioner, if you are working there, give us access to the field. And for the people from, from the media, there are also some here from the press, um, from the media, uh, support us, our outreach. We are not just producing results for academic community. Of course, we do. We have our own academic journal, the journal, the Contemporary Japan. And, uh, of course, we publish. Our researchers need to publish, yeah, publish or perish. Uh, they need to publish in order to make the next step in their career. But um, we also of course, want, to, want our research results to be communicated uh, to, the, to decision makers in politics, in the business world, and to the general interested public. And here we need support from the media. So uh, I hope you all now know what we're going to do. You are hopefully a little bit excited of what is going to happen. So keep in contact and um, see you again now at the reception and later on again at DIJ. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.